Is it safe to say that we are learning more now, more than ever, about the effect that food has on our body? Most of us as physicians barely know how much data is published every year. They barely know how much research is out there that is coming out new every year. And so you can only imagine that the public doesn't know. And of course, with big food and big pharma and a number of other industry influences, much of the data gets suppressed. So it's an important point to spend time getting to know this data and learning about it. And that's what I try to bring to the public, but it is eye-opening just how much there is each and every year. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 66 of season four, number 261 overall. Now, if you're still on the fence about whether or not a plant-based diet is healthy, today's show is for you. We will be thumbing through a ton of research that has been published just over the last year or so. And this is science that everyone can relate to, not just those of us who live and die with micros and macros. Fresh off of his presentation at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, Dr. Andrew Freeman is here with a look at these exciting studies. Here are just a few of the more interesting ones that we'll be covering. We have one that put vegan and low carb diets head to head. So vegan versus essentially keto, which one was healthier? We also have new studies on olive oil, another one on diet soda, and an enormous study on red meat that included, get this, 37,000 people. How much healthier were the people who ate little to no meat compared to those who just couldn't get enough steak. Well, Dr. Freeman is going to tell us. Plus, we also will be taking a look at interesting research on the effect that cinnamon has on blood sugar levels. Also today, we are gonna to be celebrating 20 big years for the Food for Life program here at the Physicians Committee. Now, Food for Life is an innovative program that has now helped thousands of people for the first time discover the benefits of eating a plant-based diet. And to help us celebrate, we will be hearing from a woman who was decades ahead of the curve for healthy eating. She first adopted a vegetarian diet way back in the 1980s and then became fully vegan about 10 years later. And she was so inspired by how she felt her own success that she then became one of the first ever instructors in the Food for Life program. And since that time, she has helped to reshape and reclaim the health for thousands of others, including members of her own family. Jean Myers is here with us today, and oh, what a story she has to tell. But we start with the year in plants and a boatload of promising new nutrition research with Dr. Andrew Freeman. He is the Director of Cardiovascular Prevention and Wellness at National Jewish Health, and I would consider him a close personal friend. Dr. Andrew Freeman, welcome back to the exam room, my friend. Well, thanks so much for having me again. It's nice to be back and uh, for that lovely intro. Wow, I'm starting to blush here. <laughs> is, it, is it safe to say that we are learning more now, more than ever, about the effect that food has on our body? 
You know, it, it's amazing to me. You know, you bring up some good points. You know, first, most of us as physicians barely know how much data is published every year. They barely know how much um, research is out there that is coming out new every year. Um, and so you can only imagine that the public doesn't know. And of course, with big food and big pharma and a number of other industry influences, much of the data gets suppressed. So it's an important point to spend time getting to know this data and learning about it. And that's what I try to bring to the, to the public. But it is eye-opening just how much there is each and every year. Is it possible to even quantify, like if you had to take a guess at the number of nutrition studies that have been published, say, over the past 12 months, what would you peg that at? You know, it's a great question because some of these studies, you know, have nutrition components. And so it's hard to know. My guess is it's in the hundreds uh, worldwide. Um, let me start, though, by asking you this. Some of the studies that you referenced, they don't necessarily show a cause, but they do show a significant relationship. Before we get going, can you talk to us about the difference between those two things? You know, it, it's interesting. It, you know, a lot of us believe that, you know, a certain thing causes a certain other thing in medicine. Um, but we have to be really careful when we publish as researchers. Typically, we have to list that there's an association, right? So there's an association that if I wear a seatbelt and get into a car accident, I probably won't get killed. Um, you know, but who's going to do the study that proves that, right? It all is common sense. So sometimes we have associations versus proof. And then sometimes with enough study and enough research and, and the statistical methods and, and overall uh, research methods done well, you can show proof. What I usually tell people is in the nutrition world, there's a combination of proof and association that really shows that a predominantly low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet really improves outcomes on a variety of fronts, uh, both cancer and heart disease, uh, which is what my field is. And I think that when people think about nutrition, one of the first things that they may think about is obesity, right? You eat high fat foods, you eat high calorie foods, you're going to gain weight. And then we often hear about the trends in obesity. More and more people are packing on the pounds. Recently, what have those trends been showing? Yeah, well, I mean, actually the CDC publishes this. So it's interesting, the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, um, is now spending much more effort on non-communicable diseases, right? Not communicable diseases, right? So of course they're spending time on COVID and all that since we have just sort of started to emerge from that pandemic. But by and large, the thing that still kills people the most is, is heart disease, right? So, um, and then, so they put together some amazing statistics uh, and they, you know, each year they publish it and it's a couple of years late, but in uh, 2018, uh, the obesity rate in the United States was 42%. My guess is when 2020 comes out, especially with the sort of pandemic eating that has been going on, I suspect it'll be well over 50%. Uh, and we're also starting to see trends in particular demographics. Uh, for instance, uh, nearly 60% of non-Hispanic black women were obese um, and adults between age 40 and 59 had the highest rates of obesity and severe obesity. So we're seeing um, our, our population become very large uh, in size, not necessarily number. It's interesting, the fertility rates also are lower. Uh, that's a different topic, and we can maybe talk about that if you wanted to. But uh, I think we're in trouble with the obesity rates. And, you know, obesity costs uh, an enormous amount of money every year in terms of health care and lost productivity. And let's let me let me preface this next question by saying all of the studies again that we're going to be talking about here today, I would say at most have been within the last 18 months, right? So that's about as far back as we're going to go during this discussion. Now, you talk about obesity, you think about BMI. The higher the BMI, the more likely the person is to have obesity. But 
I know that there was a study that looked at the average BMI of somebody who eats a lot of animal products, right? So they eat more meat, they eat more fish, more dairy, more eggs. And then they looked at that BMI and compared it to the BMI of somebody who ate far less of that, maybe even a strictly vegetarian or vegan diet. What did they find in this particular study? So in short, this is not news, right? You know, I would argue there's been probably dozens of studies over the last several years that show that when you eat a predominantly plant-based diet, you tend to not only lose weight, but keep it off. And so there was a study that was done um, not too long ago uh, in Germany. Um, and basically, if you ate fewer animal products, you had a lower BMI. And again, I think this is just more proof. Um, and this is what I always tell people that give me you know, grief. Oh, well, that's just an association. Well, there's a lot of signal in whatever noise may be perceived. And I think it's time we really start paying attention. And on top of that, you know, our environment is in peril. You know, this is not in my talk, but you may have seen that uh, for the first time in ever, Siberia last week was like 118 degrees, right? And a lot of that has to do with what we do every day that we take for granted, like our diets. Uh, so in short, bottom line is BMI and eating a predominantly plant-based diet has always been in a very positive correlation, meaning eating this way keeps people thinner longer. Let's let me talk to you about that. What you were just talking about from the environment and the temperature from the standpoint of a former big guy, right? I used to loathe the summer. The larger <laughs> I was, the more I hated the heat. And the funny thing is, you just hit the nail on the head. The very same foods that I was eating that kept me in that large frame are the very same ones that also kept me in that extremely hot summer heat. And that was just uncomfortable. So kind of did it to, to myself. Well, certainly, you know, contributed uh, in, in that way. And that's an association that I think only now are people on a larger scale finally trying or starting to understand that, that it's not just food. Like it's, it's your health and your body. It's the health of the environment. It's, it's so many things. It's bigger than one person. I'll put it to you that way. Well, yeah. And just to, to reiterate that, and actually last year, there was a whole slew of articles on environmental health in major journals, New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet and, you know, these worldwide journals that everybody reads. You know, the truth is it, we can no longer separate the environment and our health. We live in our environment. We live in this planet. When the planet has an unhealthy environment, we don't have a healthy environment. And so what a lot of people don't associate is, well, they're like, well, I, I'm in it for the cardiology or I'm in it for the cancer reduction or I'm in it for um, animal welfare. Uh, those are all important. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, if you have an environment that doesn't sustain life, it doesn't matter for anybody. Right. I mean, we're all in trouble. So I think we have to be smart about what we do. And, um, you know, every year the evidence just continually compounds, which is what I'm just showing. Uh, about how quickly we need to make these changes. But I would tell you, uh, and because you didn't see me speak last year, um, you know, I did a whole discussion about this, but by 2030, which is not that long away, um, we could have a significant uh, rise in temperature, which leads to more insect-borne diseases and more heat-related diseases. Um, there may be more waterborne diseases because much of our country may be underwater. I mean, it keeps going. So we are in trouble. We need to make these changes for our health, for our future, for our kids, grandkids, everybody. Mm. Kind of news that picks you up and makes you feel good, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sadly. But, you know, doing something about it does make you feel good, I think. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. And that's why we do the show. You know, it's to educate the person who is watching and then hopefully they can take this information and pass it on. Right. I mean, it's it's all about paying it forward. Uh, let's bump down to another study. This was a, an interesting one. It was 20 people 
that researchers looked at and it pitted low fat plant-based diets versus low carb diets, put them head to head, right? So essentially a vegan or vegetarian diet versus the keto diet. Um, this was, I think they did two weeks of each. So you start with one and then you flip to the other. What did researchers discover there in terms of health? You know, it's, it was interesting. They, they kind of put them through both uh, phases, but uh, people who were on the low-fat plant-based diet actually consumed 700 fewer daily calories, and both felt satiety, meaning that they were full. They felt satisfied on the diet. Both groups have lost weight, and that's true anytime you cut out a lot of the garbage that people eat, uh, but people felt satisfied on this approach, which I think is um, you know, difficult for people to, to realize. I, I mean, I take care of patients all the time and they say, doc, if I eat that rabbit food, I'm never going to feel full. And of course that's not true if it's done well. It's so interesting to me that when somebody asks, well, what do you eat on this plant-based diet? Aren't you hungry all the time? I'm like, man, I've never been more full in my life. There are times when I will back away from the table and I really, I, I don't try to eat past full. Like I, I try to be a very mindful eater, but there are still times when I will push away from the table and I will feel almost as full as I did when I would spend $20 at Taco Bell back in the day. Like it's just the the volume of fiber, that's the only thing I can think of that really just, it, man, it hits you and you just, you're, you're super full, you're super satiated. And then, like you said, you look at the caloric difference and it's like, oh my God, night and day, I only ate this many calories versus that many calories back in the day. Why wasn't I doing this sooner? It's really, it's calorie density and, and people don't realize it. You know, the way I equate this is I, I'll tell my patient, you know, I, I know that you are used to eating the cow or the pig or the chicken but I want you to eat like them. And said, I said to them, you know, the cow spends all day eating grass and concentrates the calories and then we take a shortcut and eat it. Where do you think all those calories are gonna go? And they're like, oh, I guess that makes sense, right? So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you talk about uh, calorie density, that brings us to another one of the studies I wanted to talk to you about. And this one is about olive oil. Now in the plant-based community, especially the deeper you get into it, Oil is a hot topic, man. Some people say it's okay in a little bit. Some people say you shouldn't have a, a drop whatsoever. But you took a look at a particular study that was released on olive oil. And let me, let me read you what researchers concluded here. This had to do with olive oil and cardiovascular risk. It said, quote, higher olive oil intake was associated with lower risk of uh, CHD and CVD. So you're talking about cr uh, chronic heart disease and uh, cardiovascular disease. And then they go on to say, here's where it gets interesting to me, Dr. Freeman, quote, the substitution of margarine, butter, mayonnaise, and dairy fat with olive oil could lead to a lower risk of both of those diseases. So my question is, well, wouldn't the risk be even lower without any of that fat whatsoever if there was no oil there either? You know, it's a great question. So this was actually in the premier cardiology journal, Jack, the Journal of the Association, uh, American College of Cardiology, sorry. And it was uh, nearly 100,000 people that were included. So, you know, it turns out if you take the stuff that we know is bad, margarines, butters, mayonnaise, and you put in olive oil, which is predominantly plant-based, people seem to do better from a heart disease perspective. You know, and I would also tell you that oil is a kind of an interesting thing and it's a loaded topic. You know, if you look at most oils, you take these little itty bitty seeds, you put enormous pressure, enormous heat to extract a couple of drops of oil out of them. The exception is olive oil, right? You can take an olive and squeeze it with your fingers and out comes oil, right? Or olive juice, some people call it. 
Um, now that said, you know, it's a minimally processed product and it appears to contain some very beneficial compounds for cardiovascular health. But I would also tell you that there's other data published about oils and fats that they are very concentrated sources of fats, you know, so much so that when your body gets them in, in their sort of isolated form without the matrix of the plant that they live in, your body doesn't really know what to do. And sometimes you create triglycerides and it can actually affect cholesterol and a number of other things. And then on the bench research, especially if you look at the work from Esselstyn and others, you know, they would tell you that it is uh, potentially harmful to endothelial cells, which line blood vessels. So it would have been nice to see another arm of the study where they had them on, you know, almost no fat and see how they did, because I suspect they may have done better, perhaps. But I guess my advice for my patients is typically that if they're going to consume some sort of fatty type substance, you know, olive oil or even canola oil appears to have the safest track record. But if you're high risk for cardiovascular disease, I usually tell people to go very low fat to either avoid it uh, or eliminate it altogether. Um, so bottom line is it's an interesting study and it's sort of a no brainer to me. You know, you take a block of lard or butter or, or whatever and you give them olive oil. Okay, people do better, great. Uh, the question is if you cut out the fat altogether, especially in the higher risk people, would they do better? And I suspect the answer would be yes. I would think so too. Where do you stand on uh, palm and or coconut oil? Those two seem to be the real big culprits of saturated fat. Yeah. So I, I actually never recommend coconut oil. You know, it's, it's interesting. Coconut oil actually has more saturated fat than lard, um, which is hard for people to realize, you know, and it is decadent. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had it, but it, it is incredibly decadent. That said, um, it's not good for you. In fact, it's highly associated with atherosclerosis. In fact, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines specifically say that if you consume oil to consume non-tropical oils, uh, which would be, say, coconut. Um, that said, um, you know, coconut topically for your skin is excellent, uh, except if you live in a place like Denver or, you know, the Dakotas or wherever, where when it hits the cold pipes, it congeals and causes a major plumbing problem. So I don't recommend that. And then palm oil, um, you know, has a whole bunch of um, ethical issues associated with it and also doesn't necessarily appear to be safe uh, for the same reasons. Um, so in general, I usually recommend avoiding those. So again, the, the oils that have some amount of data behind them uh, really remain olive, canola, and you might make an argument for safflower, sunflower. The rest of them uh, probably not help, uh, helpful. Some of them may be quite harmful. Uh, and I don't think we have enough data to really know, is it safe for some people who might be at lower risk versus those at higher risk? That type of study hasn't really been done in any great um, sort of scrutinizing way. I never thought, like I honestly had a hard time focusing on anything else after you pointed out that, that the oil will harden in the drain and cause a plumbing problem. I never thought of that and it makes all the sense in the world to me. Are, were you saying that from experience? Uh, no, although I do have patients and colleagues who have had such experience. You know, these days if you buy products that are, you know, hair products or soaps or whatever, they're made from coconut oil, usually you'll be okay. But if you're taking like the, you know, Costco tub of coconut oil to the shower, um, you know, and some people do all sorts of things to keep their hair moisturized and whatever, you could end up with trouble. So just make sure you, you have plenty of uh, flushing water for it, I suppose. You know, it's sort of like putting grease down the drain when you were probably little, right? You, you know, if people said, don't do that. This is the same reason. Gotcha. Again, all the sense in the world, all the sense in the world. Um, okay, so oil, a hot topic. Red meat, not so much. It seems like there's a lot of consensus when it comes to the health risks associated with red meat. Let's look at this one particular study you're going to be talking about. 37,000 Americans were included in this one, and they compared the health of those who were red meat 
addicts. They just couldn't get enough. And then the health of those who kind of swore off of red meat a lot more. What did they discover in this one? I mean, 37,000 people, that's a pretty good sample size. Yeah, although it's interesting. If you look at some of the cardiology studies that are done with many of the drugs we use, you know, there are always hundreds of thousands of people. But that said, of course, this is a very large study. You know, and those uh, who ate the most plant protein uh, compared to those who ate the least were 27% less likely to die of any cause and 29% less likely to die from heart disease. Uh, but interestingly, if you replace just 5% of the calories of animal protein with an equal number of calories from plant protein, you had a 50% decrease risk for dying from any cause, including heart disease. And if you got rid of 2% of the processed red meat, which we know is really bad news, 32% less death. And I want to point out, you cannot get the magnitude of a result from any drug that I know of like this. You know, if I said to you, hey, take this pill, it'll give you 50% less chance of dying. You know, I couldn't keep it on the shelves probably forever. Uh, and here it is, it's it's on the shelves right now. It's fruits and vegetables, right? So, you know, people need to just uh, to hear this, but here's the crazy thing. Studies like this have been done for decades and have showed similar magnitude results. So I think it's time we really start paying attention. And I really wish, frankly, especially on processed red meat, when you go to buy that hot dog at Costco or, or wherever you go, that it comes with a warning label, warning this may kill you enjoy, right? And <laughs> I and as we tape this, it was just a few days ago that Nathan's had their big annual hot dog eating contest. And I always wonder, like, what is happening to these people's bodies for the next week? What is happening to their long term risk for developing cancer, heart disease, something like that? I mean, you got to figure you're eating somewhere in the ballpark of 70 hot dogs in the span of 10 minutes. Like that is just that's not healthy on any planet <laughs> at any time ever. Although it is quite a marvel to see these people do it. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you can pull it off. You know, my only hope is that they're very rapidly eliminated from their bodies uh, because they are toxins for sure. You know, a, a lot of people, you know, have posited over the years, why is processed red meat so toxic? Well, the truth is it moves through the colon on its way out of the body. And when you don't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, that transit time is slower. So the toxins are in, to you know, in contact with the colon wall for longer. Um, you know, it's sort of like, if you smoke one cigarette, it probably won't get you. But if you smoke every day, it probably will get you. It's sort of that exposure time that seems to be dangerous. You know, that said, I can only imagine what their cholesterol is transiently and all these other things that I would never, uh, you, you can only imagine. And, and, and further, I, I can't even imagine, um, I can't even imagine what this does to their GI tract. I really can't. Mm-mm. Mm -mm. That can't be, that just, it can't be pleasant. It just can't be pleasant. Um, so there were a lot of studies on red meat that have come out, and I'm sure that there are more in the pipeline as well. Another one that you looked at, looked at the connection between red meat and diabetes, which to me is interesting because you think about diabetes, you think about sugar. I'm not sure how many people actually consider red meat being a factor in diabetes. What did this particular study find? Well, just, uh, just to kind of refresh everybody's um, sort of memories, uh, you know, back in the 1940s, Walter Kempner at Duke was treating diabetes with the white rice and fruit diet. Now, it may seem weird to feed a diabetic basically sugar-containing fruits and vegetables and white rice, which is a, effectively a processed carbohydrate, but diabetes is really a disease of fat excess. And so when you get fatty deposits in the muscles, the liver, when you eat sugary things or things that break down to sugar readily, your receptors can't come out and eat up that sugar so well. And so your sugar stays high. So, you know, when people say, well, I can't eat carbs because my sugar goes out of whack. Well, there's truth to that. But then the question is, 
why and how do we get to the root cause of that? And that's where cutting out the fat is. And remember, red meat is fatty, um, right? And so in this study, it was a meta-analysis of 28 uh, uh, manuscripts investigations. And it basically said that those who consume the most total meat, red meat and processed meat, increase their diabetes by up to 33%. You know, so that's incredible. And diabetes is on the rise, right? Roughly half of Americans have diabetes at this point uh, or pre-diabetes. And believe it or not, an extra 100 grams, which is not a very big portion, it's probably a hot dog or less, uh, of total meat or red meat increased the risk by 36% uh, uh, or more, which is just incredible to think about. And then if you ate processed red meat, or particularly a hot dog, just 50 grams increased the risk of diabetes by 46%, almost 50% increase. So in short, you know, I, I think we really need to start calling out foods for what they are, um, but this may be potentially dangerous. Yeah, but somebody right now could be hearing this, Doc, and they're like, okay, well, of course a hot dog is fatty. Of course prime rib is fatty, but there is lean cuts of red meat out there. What would your reply to that be? Well, I, I would say first, lean means there's less fat, but it's not no fat, A. And B, there's just a bunch of harmful things in red meat. Uh, I mean, you know, whether it's the uh, breakdown products that turn into TMAO, transmethylamine oxide, which I've spoken about before, or if it's something else, um, there's a lot of stuff in our food and it's concentrated toxins are concentrated uh, as we go up in the food chain. And so, you know, who knows what it is? Fat may only be part of the equation. All right, let's uh, continue on. There was another study. You just mentioned uh, the gentleman uh, from Duke back in the day who fed people uh, vegetable, uh, white rice and, and fruit. But then there's this new data that came out looking at fruit consumption and diabetes. What is this new data showing us? Yeah, I mean, it actually showed that, that people who ate the most fruit or vegetables in the cohort that was studied um, had a 50% less uh, likelihood of developing diabetes. And in fact, just 66 grams a day, more fruit and vegetables was associated with a quarter lower risk of diabetes. Um, so it's a very interesting study. But again, I would tell you fruit and vegetables are not the enemy of diabetes. In fact, uh, just a couple of years ago now, the ADA, the American Diabetes Association, actually endorses a fully plant-based diet. Now, is it, do you think, some sort of nutrient in the fruit and vegetable that is beneficial here? Or is it the fact that somebody who's eating an abundance of them is less likely to be eating an abundance of processed, unhealthy food? So is it really the fact that they're getting this or is it the fact that they're not getting that? You know, it's a great question. And I think uh, a lot of it may be that people are, are subbing out some of the bad stuff. But I would tell you that there is a, uh, you know, every time you eat a brightly colored fruit or vegetable, you're loading yourself up with a whole bunch of um, very important nutrients, including antioxidants, which neutralize a lot of the inflammation that's behind a lot of chronic disease. So uh, my guess is it's a little bit of everything. Oh, yeah, man. I love me some. I, I am a fruit junkie. I've got some fresh nectarines in the fridge right now. I've got some fresh blueberries, some strawberries. I mean, it is game time. It is the summer season and the farmer's market is my jam and they are all good. And I always get so happy in the morning when I have my oatmeal and then I just put all kinds of colorful stuff on top of it. And it always tastes amazing. I'm never disappointed. No. And that's exactly what I get people to realize, you know, think about this, right? When you, if you can get uh, fruit in the prime of its uh, uh, season, it's very inexpensive. Oatmeal is cheap as dirt. So you can eat a very nutritious, healthful and filling and tasty breakfast, you know, for a buck versus, you know, a bunch of junk that people buy from whatever stand they pass. 
Oh yeah, it's, let's hold on. You talk about inexpensive. Check this out. This was this was the haul from this past Saturday. All right, my wife and I got six ears of corn, six nectarines, uh, a bunch of blueberries. Uh, we got a bunch of uh, fresh green beans, uh, and I believe we yeah, and some potatoes. Right, so we got all of that for less than twenty dollars, and that was enough to feed us for four days. And it was just like, you want to talk about inexpensive and eating on a budget, man. You could take a family to McDonald's and blow $18 these days, no problem. Uh, for sure. And that's what I try to get people to realize. I mean, beans and rice are as cheap as they get. Uh, fresh uh, fruit is great. Frozen fruit is even a better bargain, believe it or not. So there's no shortage of ways to do this. It's just people need to be creative. And especially if they're on a budget, you don't need to go to Whole Foods and get the fanciest star fruit imported out of season. Nobody needs that. I mean, you're welcome to it. It certainly is delicious, but you, you can eat local. You can get stuff that's fresh or frozen or dry and and, and do well. Uh, <laughs> nobody needs that. That just caught me off guard. That's funny. Uh, all right. Uh, whole grains and diabetes. That was another study that uh, is in your presentation. What did What did researchers find with that? You know, the truth is, as I mentioned, carbs are really not the enemy. It's the garbage carbs, the garbage, right, that people need to avoid, right? So, you know, when you take a whole grain and mill it down into a Cheerio or a muffin or whatever it may be, you know, you're going to end up getting rapidly absorbed sugars and carbs. So your goal really should try your best, if you can, to eat whole grains. And in fact, those who ate the most whole grains in a study of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that follow people for like 4.6 million person years... Uh, showed that overall, those who ate the most had a, a third less diabetes risk compared to those who ate the least whole grains. And again, um, there are socioeconomic factors here, right? So people are eating, you know, highly processed white carbs because they have a long shelf life, um, but they may end up hurting them in the long run. So we have to be smart about how we get people the food they need at prices that are affordable. But hold up. So now you, you just talked about a Cheerio, but I believe if you look on the box of Cheerios, it'll say whole grain right on there. So clear up that confusion for us. <laughs> I, I Actually, you can buy some of the, uh, you know, magically delicious uh, cereals, too. And it says made with whole grains. You know, and I always joke with my patients that there's a lot of gamesmanship that's going on in the food industry. Right. You know, my guess is when that box is about to close, somebody sprinkles in a few little whole grains uh, and they call it made with whole grains. You know, and there are legal definitions as to what that actually needs to contain. But unless it says 100% whole grain and you recognize the ingredients as what they are, right? Oats, wheat groats, or whatever it may be, um, you know, it's, it's somewhat processed or very processed depending on what you get. All right. This next study is one that I got really excited about when I saw it. It has to do with soda. And when people drink diet soda, by and large, they're thinking that they're doing something good for themselves. They're thinking that this is the healthier option as opposed to going with the full sugar can of Coke. But back in November of last year, researchers actually looked at the two, put those head to head and came up with some interesting findings. What were they? Well, so it's actually not new. We all know that sugar-sweetened beverages, sodas, are bad news. They're associated with heart attack and stroke. And in the last couple of years, we've seen diet soda and artificially sweetened uh, beverages also come under attack. You know, there was a couple of studies last year that showed women in particular consumed diet soda regularly were more likely to have stroke. So in this pretty amazing study that was done in the Journal of American College of Cardiology this last year, uh, it doesn't matter if you eat sugar-sweetened or artificially uh, sweetened beverages, people did worse. Uh, so really, the perfect beverage for human consumption remains water. 
or if you really want unsweetened tea, unsweetened coffee. Uh, but that's it. No juice, no soda, no diet soda, no artificially sweetened beverages. You know, if you're drinking something that is just an unnatural color, it's probably artificially colored. You mean that lime green ecto Gatorade I used to drink back in the day wasn't good for me? Uh, no, no, believe it or not. You know, that's the thing when people are, I'm like, have you ever seen a, a, a juice as neon red as that quote unquote fruit punch? No, <laughs> of course not. So, you know, people need to be careful. And, uh, you know, I would tell you in a lot of parts of our country, we refer to these sort of sugar sweetened beverages as either bug juice or Kool-Aid, even though it may not actually be Kool-Aid brand. And, you know, people drink them as part of their, you know, hanging out in the park or, or whatever it may be. But, it is not good for us. Definitely not. And you can get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of calories that way. It's unbelievable how quickly they add up. And it wasn't until after I lost weight that I actually looked at the nutritional information for Gatorade. And I was crushing two like 32 ounce bottles of it on my way home from work as a snack, along with uh, some other things from 7-Eleven. And that alone was a huge shot of calories that I had no business drinking. But again, at the time, I was like, this is Gatorade. This is what athletes drink. Of course, it's good for me. Really not. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, for the record, people say, well, what about electrolyte containing beverages? You know, those are probably good if you are doing some very heavy work, um, you know, outside in the sun or, you know, running uh, or working very hard sports wise. But I usually recommend the ones that are truly just electrolyte powders that you add to the water without the artificial gobbledygook and the sweeteners. Um, you know, there are some people out there who literally drink salt water, uh, which has a similar effect, although not so tasty. Yeah, I, we had uh, Matt Frazier and Robert Cheek who just put out the plant-based athlete book uh, a couple of weeks ago. They were talking about healthier Gatorade options. One of the ones that uh, Matt was talking about was Daterade. Uh, which was a really simple concoction that people are fans of. I think it was just a date with maybe just a pinch of salt. That's the healthier thing for runners. You know, the ordinary person who's sitting at their desk uh, nine to five probably isn't going to need Datorade. Right. Um, but certainly that's a lot cleaner than uh, the bottle of Gatorade that you'll find in your local 7-Eleven. Talked a little bit earlier about oatmeal and putting fruit on it. And another popular topping for oatmeal is cinnamon. And this was an interesting study that was put out recently that looked at the effect that cinnamon consumption has on uh, blood sugar and glucose tolerance. What did researchers find with that? Um, so this is a, a small study. It was done in China, actually, uh, where a lot of cinnamon is actually uh, grown. Uh, most people don't realize this, but cinnamon is actually tree bark. Um, but it's uh, ground up and it's it's really tasty. But in this uh, group, they took uh, people who had um, uh, a cinnamon supplement, which was about 500 milligrams worth, and it actually improved their blood sugar levels and actually helped to drop their hemoglobin A1C, you know, a measure of their sugar control over the last three months. You know, again, not new. Cinnamon has been around for a long time, uh, not only as a uh, condiment and a tasty way of flavoring foods, but also has been shown to have some impact on blood glucose control. And I just continue to tell people that having flavorful foods from a variety of plant sources always seems to do better, right? You know, if you look, people are taking turmeric and curcumin supplements and all these things. But, you know, if you eat Indian flavored food, uh, you know, curries and whatnot, you're going to get curcumin and turmeric in the food. So add cinnamon to food if you like it. And actually, there's a number of cultures that add it to their savory dishes, too. Um, you know, if you ever go out for Moroccan food or others, it's there and it's quite good. Turmeric is clutch. Indian food is clutch. Curried anything is good. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. By the way, are you are you team turmeric or team turmeric? 
I say turmeric, but um, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't, doesn't, I, I understand what you're saying either way. It's um, you know, remember, I'm from New York originally, right? So the accent I grew up with was a, a very sort of uh, intense accent. Uh, it, so now I'm much oh, more neutral. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think there's a wrong way to say it personally. You know, potato, potato. I don't care. The bottom line is the stuff is good for you. Let's not worry about how it is that we say it. Uh, we got a couple of more studies that I want to touch on really quickly. Uh, there was a big old meta analysis that made your presentation here that looked at diet and mortality and lifespan. All right. So looked at, I think, 32 prospective cohort studies and uh, 31 other meta analysis. Combine that all for one big meta analysis. What did they find as far as diet and mortality? So it was interesting. First, you know, we, we are obsessed with protein in the United States and many of the first world countries. And so, you know, we're consuming loads of protein. And, and it did show that total protein intake uh, did have 6% lower risk of all cause mortality if you were in the higher group. And that may be marker, that may be more of a marker of, of diet quality, meaning if you have the resources to consume more protein, you may do better. Now, that said, a uh, higher intake of plant-based protein was significantly associated with an 8% lower risk of all-cause mortality and 22% less cardiovascular mortality. So in short, if you're going to consume more protein, it ought to be plant-based protein. Last study is one that uh, was a topic that was brought up recently on the exam room live. People wondering about the connection between their food and asthma. This is uh, one that's going to be in there. What what can we glean? What's the recent research on food and asthma? Yeah. So, you know, remember, I work at a respiratory hospital. So we see a lot of folks with chronic respiratory conditions, including asthma. And I guess what I would tell you is uh, this is also not new. There have been some very large studies over the years showing that asthma and diet are highly linked. Um, and it turns out that asthma is an inflammatory condition, right? So if you put your body in an anti-inflammatory environment, it tends to do better. How do we treat asthma? We give people steroids, right? Massively potent anti-inflammatory drugs. So in this study, um, you know, asthma has gone up as the obesity rates have gone up, particularly in westernized diets. But the diets that emphasize more fruits, vegetables, grains, and legumes and minimize the fat actually reduce the risk for asthma. And dairy uh, has been shown particularly uh, to worsen symptoms. And I've seen it personally, anecdotally speaking, that when I tell my asthmatics to go on a plant-based diet, because many of them are at risk or have coronary disease, their asthma gets better, which is always lovely to see. And then my pulmonary colleagues always raise an eyebrow at me because they can't believe it, but it, it really does work. With uh, the rates of obesity rising, are we seeing a correlation between that and asthma as well, or is that on the rise? Yeah. So like I said, I think as obesity has gone up, I think the rates of asthma and, and, and difficulty breathing have gone up. You know, we see a lot of this thing called obesity hypoventilation syndrome. So everyone seems to have some threshold and everyone's a little bit different. But when your weight goes up past a certain point, your lungs don't exchange gas very well. So many times we'll take care of a patient who has no intrinsic lung disease, but their body mass index is 40 or 50 and they're on oxygen uh, because they're hypoventilating. Their, their lungs are not exchanging gas well. And when they lose the weight, it goes away. Dr. Freeman, thank you so very much, my friend. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you were poking around on the Washington Post website recently or picked up a copy of the paper, you may have seen Dr. Freeman quoted in a big article with even more new research being featured. The headline on that article was, A plant-based diet is the best way to avoid heart disease according to a new report. Really cool article. I'll put a link to that in the episode notes. And Dr. Freeman definitely stays busy, but I do hope to have him back on the show soon to talk about that particular study. 
Because right in the lead of that article, the first paragraph, it says that poor food choices account for almost 50% of all cardiovascular disease deaths. That is an attention-grabbing stat, especially for those who aren't yet immersed in the world of nutrition. It's also a stat that my next guest knows all too well, because for nearly two decades, she has been a celebrated member of the Food for Life roster. This program is teaching others about the benefits of a plant-based diet and changing their lives by showing them how these chronic diseases are preventable and in many cases, even reversible. Gene Myers will be here with us to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Food for Life program. And stick around because after the interview, I've got details on how you can follow in her footsteps and become a Food for Life instructor yourself. Start teaching and inspiring others the same way that she has. Planting that seed for a healthier future And hey, maybe you can even make a second career out of it. But first, a little bit more on Food for Life. This year, we celebrate 20 years of Food for Life, the Physicians Committee's longest running nutrition education program. In 2001, the award-winning program was developed at a time when many health organizations and healthcare professionals were not discussing the role of plant-based eating in preventing and surviving lifestyle-related chronic diseases though cancer, diabetes, obesity, and heart disease were claiming countless lives. We pulled together our team of physicians and nurses and dietitians to design an innovative, hands-on approach to delivering information about the direct role of nutrition and health and created Food for Life. We started with tackling cancer and launched an experiment to see if people would be interested in nutrition and cooking classes for cancer prevention and survival. And they were. They valued learning how certain foods and nutrients work to promote or discourage disease. They enjoyed cooking demonstrations and sampling delicious, healthful recipes. They appreciated getting practical cooking skills and tips on applying healthful eating habits into their daily lives. They felt empowered by the supportive atmosphere that equipped them to take charge of their health. Well, my life has changed drastically because I was an insulin-dependent diabetic. I was on about 19 different pills. Since then, I, I, I reversed diabetes. I'm off of my diabetic medication. I'm off of high blood pressure medicine. I'm off of high cholesterol medicine. And I went from taking like 19 pills a day and I'm down to taking three pills a day now. I probably dropped 11 pounds. My resting heart rate's dropped down. Uh, all my numbers went down. I think that my numbers overall, not just looking at the A1C, are all better. Um, cholesterol dropped by 50%. My A1C's down. The blood pressure, I can see it, you know, it came down. I just can't say enough about this class. It was so awesome. I had an appointment with my doctor on Wednesday, a few days ago, uh, and he said, you're a new man. Building on the success of the cancer classes over 20 amazing years, Food for Life has grown to encompass several other health and chronic disease prevention topics. Plus, we tailored classes for various demographics, including children, Native Americans, and Spanish speakers. Over our 20-year history, we have gained hundreds of dedicated and passionate instructors and institutions, and they have conducted tens of thousands of classes and taught hundreds of thousands of people directly in their communities all around the world. Throughout the years, they have been featured in the news, 
sharing the power of plant-based eating. And they've been crucial to the Physicians Committee's various demonstrations, advocacy efforts, and events, including Kickstarts, Empowered by Food, Plant-Based Climate Summit, and Let's Eat Breast Cancer. I love being a Food for Life instructor because it has given me a foundation all of these years. There's also a great amount of support. We're just like a big family and we can always find resources within our group to help our communities. That's why I love being a Food for Life instructor. I think the opportunity to share something that makes such a positive impact on people's lives. I mean, and you're also improving people's health. You're helping to save the planet. You're um, being kinder and gentler to all the animals. You know, for all those reasons, I just think it's a super program. What I love about being a Food for Life instructor is that coupled with my health coaching practice, it's the ultimate package. I can not only work with people uh, and helping people through their problems, but now I can give them the skills, the tools, so that they can be more effective in improving their health, their health outcomes. I had the opportunity to attend a Food for Life class and I was so inspired by the program that I decided to become a Food for Life instructor myself. I have a very supportive um, group of fellow instructors as well as support from the PCRM staff. To say it was the most fun job I've ever had. Happy 20th anniversary. Happy 20th Food for Life. It has been a spectacular 20 years and here's to many more. This year marks a major milestone for the Physicians Committee's Food for Life program, which has been teaching the health benefits of a plant-based diet for thousands of people, really helping to get their health back on track. And today I am thrilled to be joined by one of the longest tenured instructors in the Food for Life program. She is a rock star within our organization, and that is why I am so thrilled that she is here with us today. Jean Myers, welcome to the exam room. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I am too, because you have been a really kind of trendsetter when it comes to vegetarian diets and then exclusively plant-based diets. It's my understanding that it has been well over 30 years, maybe close to 40 years since you've had any meat. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. In uh, 1984, I read Francis Moore LaPay's book, diet for a small planet. And that's what changed my outlook. Um, I just felt like it was uh, something I had to do ethically. It wasn't that about the animals so much back then. It was about all the starving people that didn't have enough to eat because of the meat-centered diets of the Western world. And so I um, switched at that point. In 1984, I would imagine um, that there were not a whole lot of vegetarians uh, in, the, in the world at that point, right? We hadn't seen that trend start to explode as we're beginning to see now. What kind of reaction did you get from your friends and your family at that point? Well, you're right. There weren't the products in the stores that you can buy to make cooking easy. It was, um, yeah. Uh, well, I was just pretty determined, and so I didn't really worry about my friends' reactions so much. The family um, did not join me. I just cooked my own stuff. Um, 
I was able to make dishes for the kids and then I would take mine out before I added the meat. And then, so for about uh, three or four years, we kind of went our separate ways. And then my daughter, when she was seven, read a book about a veterinarian's and his daughter who loved animals so much she wouldn't eat them. And so then my daughter became vegetarian at age seven. So then there was my daughter and I eating vegetarian and then my husband and two sons were not. But over the years, uh, my son had to do a paper for school and he contrasted um, Gandhi and Churchill. And he read about Gandhi's Ahimsa philosophy and he became vegetarian. And then my husband's a physician and as he learned more and more about the health um, impacts of red meat, he left that off and then he got rid of chicken. And, and so he became vegetarian. And finally, our middle son, we were on a trip to California driving past stockyards. And he said later, it was so difficult being in the car with four vegetarians driving past stockyards that he, he also uh, became vegetarian. So it took eight years, but then we were finally all in the same place. So eight years from 1984, I'm guessing this is right around 1992 at that point, right? Right, right. Okay. Now, um, let me let, let me pause before we move forward with your story, because one of the questions that we get all the time on the show, Gene, is I am new to this plant-based diet, but my family has not joined me on this journey. So I'm finding it really difficult to cook two meals every single time. How did you balance that? How did you make that happen? Are there any tips that you can share? Well, I looked for recipes where you add the meat later, <laughs> you know, and um, or it was just a separate thing. And I ate all the side dishes and made sure that I had beans in something. Um, so it really wasn't it didn't seem that hard to me. That is sage advice. That is the first time I think I've ever heard it like that. Like most people assume that you you have to do two different recipes. Like if you're doing meatloaf, you got to do the meatloaf and then you've got to do the lentil loaf to go with it, right? But now you're talking uh, about just being smart about it and adding uh, the non-vegan products down the line. I like where your head's at, Gene. This is why I have you on the show because you are bringing a, a ton of wisdom to us. Um, Let's flash forward another five years. 1997 for you was another big year. That's when you decided that you didn't just want to be vegetarian. You wanted to become a full-blown vegan at that point. What was the deciding factor there? That was learning more about the egg and dairy industries and what happens. Before that, I just had never heard that all these baby chicks were killed the male chicks were killed. I didn't know that. I didn't know how cows were treated. And it just made me horrified. But I have to say, that was a harder transition than no meat. Um, and in fact, I had to try it <laughs> once or twice before I could, I was sort of a little addicted to um, uh, frozen yogurt. And you know, there weren't that many other options at that point. Um, but 
once I just got it in my brain that anytime I wanted dairy, I would think of the cow. You know, cows have a gestation period as long as humans, um, you know, and they mourn for their calves when they're taken away. So, you know, that just really touched me. And, you know, I had been a nursing mom, so I know know about motherhood. <laughs> Um, you mentioned that frozen yogurt was hard. A lot of people also struggle with cheese. Was that a big one for you? Um, it wasn't as big for me as it was for my husband. He really struggled with cheese. And for several years, uh, we didn't have any at home. But if we went to a party or something, you know, he might have a little bit. But it takes a while to lose that addiction. And I think Neil has done such a great job, you know, in his books and his talks about informing people that cheese is an addiction. <laughs> yeah. The cheese yeah. trap is a great book. Yes. Um, so your, your husband, the, uh, the physician, uh, yes. he goes primarily for health reasons. That's his, his big deciding factor for changing up his diet. You, it seems more you're on the animal side and, and the environment side. We'll, we'll get into that as well, but how important were the health benefits to you while you're making all of these decisions as well? Well, I always felt pretty healthy. What I was surprised by, though, I always had a sinus infection every winter and just figured, you know, that's normal. You get a cold and it turns into a sinus infection. But after I gave up dairy, I didn't have another one ever. <laughs> so um, that was pretty surprising because that's not something a lot of people know. I did not realize, man, that's fantastic. Um, so the getting, getting rid of the dairy seemed to cure your sinus ales, um, yes. right down to the infections every year. Well, that's gotta be a pleasant surprise. That must've been a nice winter. The first time you went through all of those right. cold weather months and didn't get sick. Right. For sure. <laughs> and the other thing was, I don't have to think about my weight. It takes care of itself mm. on this plant-based diet. And before, you know, I was, I struggled with weight as a teenager and um, early adulthood. Um, and I just don't because, you know, you have so much fiber, you're so full. And when you eat healthy, you really start enjoying healthy food and that other stuff. I used to be addicted to cheesecake, but, <laughs> but it no longer appeals. Even vegan cheesecakes don't send me that much. <laughs> Now you're in my wheelhouse talking about struggling with your weight. Um, so let's let's spend a little bit of time talking about that. What were some of the foods beyond just the cheesecake that you were really attracted to during your teens and early 20s? Well, um, I was attracted to junk food. I was a binger on junk food. Um, you know, you get a bag of whatever kind of snacks and I would just eat the whole thing. Um, at that point, I was working three to 11 as a nurse in the hospital and you come home at 11 and you're exhausted, but you can't unwind yet to go to sleep. And so I would eat and you may know nighttime eating is not a good time. <laughs> um, and so just the whole lifestyle. And then, you know, I would try every diet that came out. I went on the Atkins diet before it was called that. It was Dr. Stillman's weight loss diet in high school. I tried that total protein, nothing else. And I got so sick that fortunately I quit it after two weeks. 
<laughs> just two weeks and you were tapping out already, huh? Yeah. Oh man, w were you just getting nauseous or just generally not uh, feeling I well? felt weak and sick and I just couldn't look at cottage cheese again, you know? <laughs> Um, so it's, it's interesting that you were a nurse working that three to 11 shift. Um, a lot of times when we do the live shows on Wednesday, when we have a doctor on, people will ask, well, look, you know, I'm working that third shift or I'm working the three to 11. And I really do have a hard time eating healthy when I'm keeping those hours. So, um, yeah. what, what were some of the other tips, some other things that you eventually found that worked for you? Well, I have to say I didn't stay with nursing and then that schedule. And I think that was one thing that helped. The other thing that was most helpful to me, which is quite unusual, is getting pregnant. Um, we had our first child and all of a sudden I read everything. It, it dawned on me that everything I ate was going into this baby. So I couldn't eat junk food. <laughs> Somehow for myself, I didn't care, but for the baby, I cared. And oh, so I quit junk food and that got it out of my life. Why do you think you had that philosophy when there's still this theory out there that when you're pregnant and you have these cravings, you can basically eat whatever it is that you want? Uh, well, what I read and, and what hit me was I am creating a new life that depends on what I put in my body. Um, and I don't want this poor baby to be suffering because they didn't have, you know, the antioxidants and the vitamins and the minerals and, and junk food doesn't have that. <laughs> Indeed it does not. Um, okay. So we're back 1997 here. Uh, you're eating an exclusively plant-based diet. Um, and with this being such a momentous year for the food for life program, I'm guessing that because you eventually landed there, um, from 1997, from the time that you became an instructor, you just began to learn more and more and more about the benefits of plant-based eating. So what was getting you so excited and so motivated to eventually become a food for life instructor during that time? Well, um, we were in Arizona in, um, well, not 97, but when we, I, I joined PCRM fairly early because I remember getting their emails and, you know, their, their information, the, the uh, monthly uh, publication and really, really appreciating all they were doing. And so I, I was in touch, but um, I don't think I heard about the Food for Life program for a while. And then I was in a transition. I was at that point a marriage and family therapist in Arizona. And um, when I heard about the Food for Life, it just sounded so fun because I have always enjoyed cooking. Um, and I did have the health background. At that time, you had to have a health background or a chef background. And um, so I had the health background and I was able to cook. And I thought, wow, this sounds really fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it turned out to be. Um, how how was uh, how was the class instruction for you? Um, as it stands now, uh, there is I believe it's three days that people go through um, where they're coached up on how to do these classes. What was the training experience like for you? Um, it was amazing because PCRM had a grant at that point, and they paid for us to fly to DC for this three days, three, four days it was. And um, 
yeah, we got to observe one real class being taught in person. And then we went through each of the lessons. There was only the Cancer Project curriculum at that time. And it was called the Cancer Project. It wasn't called Food for Life. So you get your Food for Life instructor credentials, um, and eventually you begin to teach your first class. Do you remember teaching your first class? Were there any jitters that you had? Oh, heavens, yes. <laughs> um, I was really fortunate. Uh, I went to the hospital where my husband was on staff, and I talked to their um, community liaison people, and they were open. At that point, PCRM paid for everything, so they didn't have to put up any money, and I was willing to teach, so they were fine. Go ahead and try it out. And so um, we got a classroom, and it was on the hospital campus at that point, and I uh, talked to the people at the newspaper. They put an article in, and the first class was full within, you know, a short time. So it was, um, but yeah, there were jitters because I practiced at home. I went through the whole thing at home on my own before. And, uh, but teaching it with the videos with uh, Neil and having the curriculum kind of spelled out, um, it was really pretty easy. Okay, so to me, it seems like you kind of went above and beyond what a typical person would do on their first time out. Like, I would think that initially you're just, you know, you're you're looking to have maybe five people in that class. Maybe there's some friends and family filling up some of those chairs, but you go straight to the hospital. And beyond that, you reach out to the newspaper and say, hey, this is what I have going on. Would you mind giving it a mention? Where did right. that motivation come from for you? Um. Well, I wanted it to reach as many as I could. And so, yeah, we had 20 people. That was about my max at that point that I thought I was comfortable with the room and, and the sample sizes and all that. And uh, yeah, so, and then, you know, after that, um, I had waiting lists. And so public publicity was not something I really had to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I don't, you know, I'm not much help to other instructors because I think the climate is different now. I think there's a lot more options out there for people. And so you're in a real competitive kind of place compared to what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, well, I would say that, but I think that the, the fundamentals are there as, as far as that drive to just get going. And it seemed to me like you didn't dip your toes in the water. You just kind of pinched your nose and jumped right into the deep end and just got off and running. And I think that for Food for Life and certainly in my experiences in media as well is like when you just decide to do it and you push all the chips into the middle of the table, you go all in. Things just inevitably seem to work out and, and you knock out those jitters. Would you say that that is really the best advice that you could give to somebody who's just coming up through that Food for Life program? Oh, right. I mean, it's such a needed thing. And it's so different from other things that are out there. I've gone to other cooking classes and... Um, you know, the Food for Life programs make cooking easy. They don't make it complicated. People have said, oh, I didn't think I could do this, but you know, I found out I can. Um, so 
I, uh, I would not hesitate to do it all over again. So this is uh, all the way back in 2005, you go through uh, the training. A um, lot of years have passed since then and now. Do, wh who are some of the more memorable students that you've had throughout the years? Are there one or two that really stand out to you? Well, you know, um, yes, there is one who really stands out. Her name is, and she wouldn't care if I told you her name, her name is Edna. and. When she took my class, she was 82 years old. She changed her diet. She said she felt better, as good as she had when she was 40. And then not only that, she was um, living in a sort of retirement community area. Um, and she started having food is fun classes at her house, teaching plant-based cooking to her neighbors and her friends. Edna, wow, yes. that's yes. phenomenal. She was amazing. <laughs> what an inspiration she, wow. Yeah, that's her great. husband died of cancer and she said, I don't want cancer in my house ever again. And that was her motivation for taking the class. I would imagine that would definitely stick stick with you as an instructor. Yes. I mean, how can you forget that story? My goodness gracious, that's, that's just incredible. Um, yes. I'm noticing a theme with you though. I was going to ask you what you get out of this as an instructor, but it just hit me. It's like you went from being a nurse to being a therapist. And then also, in addition to that, becoming an instructor. And so it seems to me like you just have this inherent drive that you want to help people. I guess you could say that. Um, and it is a joy when you see people thrive. I mean, even... Um, Oh, I don't know. A few months ago, I was sitting in the jacuzzi at the gym where I swim. And this guy was sitting there and somehow we started talking about food. And he said, oh, yeah, my my blood pressure is kind of borderline high. And my doctor wants me to take medicine and I don't want to. And I said, well, have you tried flaxseed and a plant-based diet? And he said, well, I'm trying to eat more vegetables. So I said, well, try adding flaxseed. And then I saw him a couple months later and he said, you know, it worked. <laughs> His <laughs> blood pressure went down and he avoided, you know, he avoided medication. I mean, that that is true health is getting your health back. And I think that's what's important. So you hear stories like that and then there's somebody who may just be learning about a plant-based diet now. And, and you've been at this for so long. I mean, since 1984 and then 1997, all in with the vegan diet. Jean, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball and look 20 years down the road for those new vegans. If they stay exclusively plant-based for the next two decades, what do you see in terms of their health? Oh, they will avoid <laughs> being part of the health, the sick care system that we have. That is major. If you can stay out of the doctor's office, that's what I think. And you have energy and vigor and you can enjoy activities with your kids, your grandkids. I mean, you can be there for their graduations and all that. I mean, it just makes life so much richer. 
And another thing, as we uh, try to wrap things up here, Gene, uh, you've been really nice uh, and generous with your time here, but I know for you, a big driving factor for what it is that you're doing now is the connection between food and climate. Um, obviously, that's something that's been on your radar for a long, long time. Uh, like when we talk about food and climate, what do you think the average person is missing? Um, well, for one thing, most of the environmental organizations don't have it on their radar at all. So many people don't even think of a connection between what they eat and the climate. But the the amount of land, water, and other resources that growing animals for food takes is tremendous. And the cost um, and the, all the forests that get chopped down for grazing lands, and it could, just goes on and on. Um, whereas plant-based diets, we could feed everybody on this planet with enough food on a plant-based diet. And you're working tirelessly now to really educate people about that connection as well. How is your message being received? Um, well, be honest. For the it's most okay. part, yeah. For the most part, um, people are comfortable when you talk about stopping using fossil fuels, but they don't realize the impact of food. Um, and so. Yeah, it, it is a challenge to get more people to see that. But um, like PCRM's Climate Summit, there are a lot of things happening now, especially that I think people will start to uh, wake up a little bit. And what are some of the projects that you're involved with now to really try to help educate people about that connection, that, um, that trip to the drive through that, that trip to the drive-through is so much more detrimental than just to your own health. Right, right. Well, I've been involved in a climate action group that's part of a Buddhist organization. Um, and we put on a day-long um, online event during COVID about the climate and what people can do. And I did a whole thing on, on food for that. Um, and I'm also involved with an organization called Climate Healers. Um, you can find them online, climatehealers.org. They um, promote uh, a vegan world by 2026. So they're very audacious as far as their goals. But the thing is, we don't have a lot of time left. And so I believe we do have to get audacious about what we're um, helping people to see the connections. And I, I truly believe people want this world to be healthy for their children and grandchildren. And it's really not that hard to change your diet. And, you know, the Food for Life program does a lot to educate people about the benefits of a plant-based diet. And those do extend. Obviously, that program focuses on health, but the benefits they can't help but to extend also to the environmental end of things, to the animal welfare end of things as well. So uh, my final question to you, Gene, is this. With this being the big anniversary of Food for Life, what would you say to somebody who comes up to you and says, well, I'm thinking about being an instructor. What is the best part about it? Oh, gosh. Um, well, 
you get to cook. And I hope if you're going to become a constructor, you love to cook. Um, and you get to do what you love, share it with other people, and see their enthusiasm and their um, health and, and their lives improve. I really um, would encourage anybody who loves to cook and loves to share about food to go ahead and, and become an instructor. There it is. There's your reasons why, the big why. Gene Myers, thank you so very much for everything that you have done for the Food for Life program. And uh, congratulations also uh, on being such a, a longtime champion of a plant-based way of eating and, and helping the environment, helping health. Like you are just, you, I don't know that you realize it because you seem so humble and nice and down to earth, but you really are kind of a trailblazer, Gene. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. If you are now ready to become a Food for Life instructor and you want to teach the benefits of a healthy diet in your community, applications are being accepted until August 23rd. And you don't have to be a doctor or even a whiz in the kitchen to apply. All you need to do is log on to fFLtraining.org. That's fFLtraining.org and get your application in by August 23rd so that you can start taking your passion for health to the masses and hopefully, just like Gene, start changing someone's life. And I'll even be helping out with some of the training this year, going over some media and presentation tips so that your classes can be top-notch and engaging. And more importantly, you'll also be learning from our world-renowned doctors and dietitians here at the Physicians Committee, like dietitian Susan Levin, who will guide you during your training. And you'll also get to see how the classes are being taught so that you know what to expect when you're at the front of the classroom. There's even an opportunity for an exclusive Q&A with Dr. Neil Barnard and so many others. But the curriculum goes beyond just nutrition. It delves into the business side of things as well, and it teaches you how to market yourself and your Food for Life classes so that you can reach as big of an audience as possible. We want to get that message out there to as many people as possible. So if this is something that you think you would be interested in, applications are being accepted until August 23rd at fFLtraining.org. And you can find a link to that website right now in the episode notes. Good show today. Pretty incredible how much research has been pouring in about plant-based diets, isn't it? I mean, it's mind-blowing how much Dr. Freeman was able to talk about, and that was only a small sampling of what is out there. And with all of that research that continues to emerge, it's fair to ask yourself whether you want your golden years to be spent uncomfortably fighting disease, or whether you want your days to be filled with long walks in the park and playing with the grandkids as you go well into your 80s and 90s. Of course, there are no guarantees, but there is plenty of science showing that this is a phenomenal opportunity to give your quality of life a major upgrade as the years roll by. 
And finally today, if you haven't already subscribed to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee, please do that right now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever shows are available. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating because every new subscription, every five-star rating helps us get this information to those who need it the most. In a way, it's just like what the Food for Life program is trying to do, trying to get this information to those who need a health jumpstart. And you can help out that person right now because every new subscription and five-star rating helps the podcast climb a little bit higher in the rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for those who need this to find this potentially life-saving information. So I thank you in advance. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you once again to my guests, Dr. Andrew Freeman, and of course, the inspirational Gene Myers for joining us today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <music>